In our chapter, we analyze this emergence of corridors in Asia and we try to place it within the economic, political and social contexts within which this emergence is taking place. We do three things. First, we outline the spatial, economic and political context themselves within which corridors have begun to emerge in Asia. The second thing we do is that we outline the key characteristics of corridors in Asia and examine the specific cases of three countries, Japan, India and Malaysia, to draw out common characteristics of corridors. We argue that corridors are primarily spatial forms uh, which seek to integrate nations by transcending existing political and economic boundaries while also remaining tied to existing uh, economic objectives and goals. The third thing we do in our paper is that we critique this notion and we argue that in order for corridors to effectively integrate regions, the objectives of corridor planning need to be broadened. Something that we would like to acknowledge is that there is a link between this emergence of corridors in Asia as well as the extensive urbanization processes that are taking place across the continent. As more regions across Asia become urbanized, corridors are emerging as spatial forms which integrate these separated, disparate urban centers into more cohesive, uh, unified regional areas. The corridor acts as a site for many of the opportunities and challenges of the Asian city that were presented in the rest of this book. But it's also a site for these opportunities and challenges to play out at a much larger scale. Uh, than that of the city. It plays out at a region. Such transformations are not just physical, but they are also economic and political, with corridors offer, often operating under their own governance structures, independent of local governments, formed with specific economic and business agendas. It also throws open the arena for complex open ownership and environmental contestations in the middle of these new governance regimes. When integrated with other types of large-scale infrastructural development, uh, think of uh, megalopolises or smart cities. Asian corridor projects, when you combine them with these, can have significant impacts on patterns of urbanization in the continent. We can expect comparable trajectories of urbanization and challenges in Africa and Latin America, which are also experiencing a similar development of economic corridors. Now, all of this is taking place at a time when a radical change is taking place in the form and the nature and the extent of urbanization across the globe. Previous assumptions that we've held of cities being qualitatively specific and distinct from non-urban spaces are now being revised. The urban can no longer be seen as just one particular type of settlement. And what we believe uh, is that corridors represent an important factor in this shift of thinking. Corridors differ from conventional notions of cities not only in terms of their physical or spatial characteristics, they are also singularly representative of urbanization taking place at larger scales than those of conventional cities. As a result, they recast the notion of what is conventionally urban and by extension, they push us to re-examine our notions of what constitutes urbanization. Now let's think a little bit about the contexts within which these corridors emerged. Now if you look at Asia's socio-economic and political landscape post-World War II, uh, the latter half of the 20th century, uh, it was quite varied. So Japan, for example, was rebuilding its economy after World War II. Vietnam was fractured through a conflict with the United States. 
China adopted a communist style of government characterized by projects such as the Great Leap Forward. Singapore focused on integrating itself instead with world markets as a center for international trade. And India adopted a mixed economy model with a heavy emphasis on public sector dominance and large public projects. By and large though, there seemed to be a recognition that economic planning needed to be carried out at a national level, with the country's national government designing plans and strategies to increase growth, development and well-being. The nation-state, therefore, was the predominant political and economic entity on the world stage. This was also reflected in plans and strategies. So, for instance, India's political structure gave greater powers to the central government, that is the national government, rather than the states, while its five-year economic plans place a strong emphasis on achieving national goals. Now, these notions of planning, of the centrality of the national government, began to be challenged towards the end of the 20th century. The earliest challenges came from within the nation-state model itself, as certain nation-states witnessed increases in growth and development by integrating themselves more closely with international markets. Take Japan, for example. It created an environment where Japanese companies could produce and export large numbers of automobiles and electronic goods to European and American markets. Singapore became another example. Its early focus on becoming a center for world trade paid off in terms of high economic growth and prosperity. However, the argument against relatively closed markets received a boost in the 1990s. This was due to the collapse of the Cold War order which was succeeded by a growing international emphasis on globalization. This included the establishment of the World Trade Organization in 1995 and the adoption of the global agreements such as the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade by a large number of countries. The export-oriented growth model was taken up by a number of Asian countries, including Southeast Asian economies such as Thailand and Malaysia. While the Asian financial crisis of 1997 brought out some challenges to this model. The subsequent global rise of China on the back of cheap exports ensured that it continued to be espoused in China. And now, as a result, this period witnessed the emergence of new entities which challenged the dominance of the nation-state. Uh, it challenged the nation-state as a major economic actor in world markets. So these new entities included multinational corporations, private corporations operating across national jurisdictions, which grew in prominence. In countries like China, city and regional governments were given greater autonomy, allowing them to devise separate economic strategies to bring in investment. The opening of national economies to world markets was frequently supported by multilateral agencies such as the World Bank and the IMF, which often made liberalization and globalization strategies a prerequisite while providing financial support to countries. As the heterogeneity of actors increased on the international stage, perceptions of geographic space with respect to economic plans and strategies also changed. During the early post-war period, geographic space was seen as subservient to the plans and strategies of the nation-state, and therefore, the transformation of space reflected the dominance of the national state as, as an entity. So, for example, take the creation of steel towns such as Bhilai and Bukaro in central India. Now, these were ostensibly planned with multiple objectives such as the development of economically backward regions. But the key goal of steel towns such as Bhilai and Bukaro was to facilitate 
the production and the distribution of steel within the national economy. The spatial structure of the steel town was often that of an autonomous township with a governance structure that was independent of the local political system, but nevertheless subject to direct control by a public sector company operating under the national government. Now, as the economic and political landscape changed, so did perceptions of geography. On one hand, you had national borders, which were increasingly seen as porous, open for business to certain multilateral actors and multilateral institutions. On the other hand, the simultaneous opening of economies around the world saw an increase in investment choices for global capital, leading to competition between locations to attract investment. Thus, while national borders of the whole became relatively less important, the nature and characteristics of the country, the state, the location became increasingly crucial to attracting investment. This led to highlighting comparative advantages of a particular location, uh, such as you know this old rivalry that existed in the 90s between the Indian cities of Bangalore and Hyderabad, uh, which tried to uh, attract international investors by highlighting their comparative advantages vis-a-vis each other. All these changes had an impact on spatial planning. Cities and regions were no longer planned for national but for international markets. The Indian Steel Township in a remote location gave way to information technology parks which were located in prominent metropolitan areas uh, and the metropolitan areas themselves were aspiring to become world-class cities. Infrastructure such as airports, highways and internet connectivity became tools to highlight comparative advantages in location. Economic policies were restructured to reduce barriers to international business. Simultaneously, the new fluidity of national borders led to changes in the structures of production chains across the world. It became easier for multinational businesses to break their production activities down into smaller components and relocate these specific components of the chain to cheaper places. Take China. China became the receptacle for many of these manufacturing activities, such as component assembly. On the other hand, if you look at India or the Philippines, they started specializing in outsourced service-based activities such as call centers. Production chains could now be dispersed across multiple locations. As a result of these changes, the goals of the nation-state transformed as well. While nation-states still pursue an ostensible national agenda, the goal is rarely to create a self-sufficient national market for goods and services. Instead, the last 20 or 30 years have seen a much greater emphasis on generating welfare by integrating specific locations within the country to international markets. Due to this emphasis on location, spatial strategies are now reoriented to transforming this location to address global and international requirements rather than local ones. The emergence of the corridor in Asia as a dominant spatial and economic form uh, in recent years, it needs to be seen as a later stage in these transformations that are being described. The development of a fractured global economic landscape where multiple locations compete with each other to attract capital investments has increased incentives for proximate locations to consolidate into larger regions, combining these comparative advantages that different locations have with each other rather than you know compete with each other as separate locations. So again, if you look at Bangalore and Hyderabad, there are now corridor projects being planned between the two cities, uh, which 
you know, try and create these uh, larger integrated regions that will combine the advantages of the two cities together.